Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at Truth on the Hill and enjoy. Today, we're going to be talking about Abraham and Isaac, um, two of the founders, um, really the founder and his son of the faith of Christianity. But let's start with some historical context. This story takes place around 2000 BC, which, as we know, means that it's in the Bronze Age. If you've watched the previous videos, we've talked about the Bronze Age quite a bit. Um, the Bronze Age, for those of you who don't know, probably happened between somewhere around 3300 BC all the way up until about 1200 BC when the Bronze Age collapsed and the Iron Age began. Um, at least in the Near East, Middle East area. So what are some of the evidences that we have that Abraham was even a real person um, and, that the, and that the Israelites were there at the time and that this book is even true? Um, the book of Genesis is where we're going to be reading out of, and it mentions many, many places. It mentions Hebron, it mentions Haran, it mentions Ur. Um, these are three ancient cities that we have found in archaeology, um, exactly where the Bible tells us they would be. Um, as well as in the, um, as well as the Abraham's Gate, a, a gate named Abraham's Gate, um, in Tel Dan. There are two, three other main things that I could find that were um, pretty convincing evidences. The first one is um, an inscription from a pharaoh of Egypt named Shawshank I. Um, he invaded the lands of Israel, uh, specifically the lands of Judah, um, in 926 BC. And during that time, as he uh, conquered through different areas of the land, he recorded where he conquered and things like that as a, as a record of what he was able to do. And one of the places that he conquered was named the Fort of Abram, um, A-B-R-A-M, Abram, which was the name of Abraham before God changed it. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, a second one is another Egyptian. Um, it's the tomb of Nemhotep II. And in his tomb, there's a painting of Semitic merchants from Canaan, um, what is Israel today. Um, it doesn't say that they were Israelites, but it does show that there were people from that region from that time, which aligns with what the Bible tells us in um, Genesis chapter 12, chapters 42 and 43, and chapter 46. The final one is um, the Mari tablets. The Mari tablets are in the, were found in the city of Mari, which is in modern-day Syria. It was the capital of the Amorites. And these tablets mention the city of Nahur, um, which is most likely named after Abraham's grandfather, Nahor, um, an O instead of a U. And then it also they mention the city of Haran, which again is mentioned in the Bible and which we have found. 
So, before we even get to Abraham, where did Abraham come from? Who was this guy? What is the book of Genesis? All of those questions. The book of Genesis, in my opinion, is one of the most packed books in the Old Testament or even in the Bible in general. Um, this book takes us all the way from before history began, uh, before the creation of the universe, all the way up until the slavery in Egypt, um, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So chapters one through five take us through the story of creation and the story of the two, uh, the first two humans, Adam and Eve. After that, Chapters 6 through 11 take us through the story of Noah um, and the global flood that destroyed all life on earth to be rebuilt by Noah and his family. Chapters 12 through 25 are about Abram, who is later renamed Abraham by God. Um, chapters 25 through 35 talk about Abram's son Isaac. And then chapter 35 through 50 talk about Isaac's son, Jacob, who is later renamed Israel. Abraham is one of the descendants of Shem. Shem, Ham, and Jepheth were the three sons of Noah that were Noah that were taken on the um, the three sons of Noah that joined Noah and their wives all on the ark um, when the global flood happened. Abraham and his two sons are held in high esteem. There are many places in the Bible where instead of just saying the God of Abraham, um, the person speaking, whoever it is, will say um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because all three of them are held in this incredibly high esteem for the position that they played and the position that they held and the role that they played in history. Abraham is considered the father of three monotheistic faiths, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Judaism, of course, um, are the Israelites, are the Jews, and they trace themselves back to Abraham um, in the stories that we're reading here in Genesis 12 and onwards, um, they trace themselves back to there. Christianity does the same. Uh, however, we have uh, Jesus Christ, who we will talk about in a future video, but he is who we really look to rather than looking to Abraham. But in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3, um, the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ give testimony of his lineage. Um, lineages are, of course, very important to Jews to show that they are truly Jewish. Um, and Matthew 1 and Luke 3 give us um, the lineages of Jesus's mother and Jesus's father to prove not only that he um, was a Jew, but that he was a Jew of the tribe of Judah and that he was a direct descendant of the people he was supposed to be. Um, and so most Christians date our, our faith back to 35-ish AD, 70 AD, 
somewhere in the first century AD, um, back to the founding fathers of our faith, the apostles, and of course, Jesus. And then the final, the final faith is the Islamic faith, who about 600 years later, um, this man named Muhammad claimed to be a prophet of God, and of course claimed Abraham as the father of their faith, but that um, Judaism and Christianity broke away from God and didn't truly follow God, and because of that, they were to be considered um, infidels, people who were not part of the true faith of Allah, which is what they call God, um, and should be treated as such. So before we get into chapter 22, which is the story that we're going to be reading today, we're, I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of where Abram came from and how he got to be Abraham and where we are today. So um, Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of the city of his father to go to a new land that he promises. Um, Abraham, then Abram, um, agrees and leaves with his wife Sarai and they go and there's this famine and so they go to Egypt and Abram sends in Egypt and there's a whole ordeal about it and so then they leave and in chapter 13 he is uh, in chapter 12 he leaves but he leaves with his father and with his nephew Lot and Lot's family in chapter 13 he separates from Lot. He gives Lot the choice between one area and another area. Lot chooses to go one way, and Abram goes the other. And then God reappears to Abram and reaffirms the promise. God reaffirms the promise a lot. Um, in chapter 14, Abram's nephew is kidnapped, so he goes to war against the kings that kidnapped him, and he ends up meeting this priest named Melchizedek, who is the high priest of... Uh, who is the high priest and king of the city of Salem, which is the future city of Jerusalem, but at the time was just named Salem. Um, in chapter 15, God reveals himself again to Abram and reaffirms the promise again. In chapter 16, Sarai and Abram don't trust in God's promise to give them a son. And so Ishmael is born to Abram through Sarai's um, through Sarai's handmaiden, who is named Hagar, and God says you weren't really supposed to do that, and so he, in chapter seventeen he reappears to Abram and says, "Look, you weren't supposed to do that. I'm going to give you an actual seed of Sarai." Um, and he changes his name at that point from Abram to Abraham, as well as changing Sarai's name from Sarai to Sarah. After reaffirming that promise, chapter 18 happens where God tells Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed, which is where Lot's family lives. So Abraham negotiates with God, and he ends up getting... Lot's family saved, angels appear to Lot's family, and 
take them out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think they lived in Sodom, but I'd have to check that one. Um, and then Lot's wife looks back. She dies. She turns into a pillar of salt. Um, that's kind of the, that's kind of all we hear of Lot at that point. Um, we hear of his children, but we don't really hear of him anymore. That happens in chapter 19. Then in chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah go to a distant land. I think it might be Egypt again. And they lie again. And then they come back. Um, the lie, by the way, is that Abraham goes and he's scared because he knows that um, Sarah is described as the most beautiful woman. Um, and... Abraham knows that, well, Abraham thinks that these foreign kings, when they go into the land, are going to kill him if they know that they're married. And so instead, Abraham goes and he says, this is Sarah, my sister. And then both times, he says, this is Sarah, my sister. And then they take Sarah to be one of their wives, like the king's wife. And then God shows up to the king and is like, don't do this. This is somebody's wife. And then the king gets mad and goes to Abraham and is like, what are you doing? Why are you giving me your wife? Why did you lie to me about saying that it was your sister? And he gets like checked by these foreign kings. And, um, and then they leave afterwards. And then in chapter 21, uh, Isaac finally is born to Sarah. Um, and in a very old age, Abraham is a hundred and Sarah is old. She's in her nineties. Um, and so when Isaac is born, Abraham casts out Hagar and Ishmael, the handmaiden and her son, um, so that there would not be an issue with them growing up together in editing i realized that i did a fairly poor job of explaining why ishmael and hagar were cast out um basically there's a party that happens in genesis 21 for isaac to um for isaac being weaned and sarah sees hagar and ishmael there and um she goes to Abraham and she tells him to cast them out so that Isaac can be the heir because technically Ishmael was the heir even though he was born of Hagar and not of Sarah. And then God comes to Abraham and tells him, um, look, do what your wife says. The heir that I was speaking about was Isaac, but don't worry, I will take care of Ishmael and Hagar, and I will make a nation from Ishmael. Um, and so then Abraham takes food and water and gives it to them and then sends them on their way uh, partway through Genesis 21. And we're not, we don't think that Abraham, we're not told that Abraham and Ishmael ever see each other again. But we do know that Ishmael comes back for Abraham's burial and funeral um, once Abraham dies.
So they leave and God appears to them and promises them protection. And then chapter 22 is where we pick up where Abraham's faith is being confirmed. Now, again, Abraham and Sarah had, um, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was also incredibly old. I can't find it in chapter 21. It just says that they were old. But it does say in chapter 21, verse 5, Now Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. I've heard the age of the patriarchs, in in this case, uh, Abraham, be contested. Um with an explanation that uh, we shouldn't read the ages literally because they would keep ages, they would they would measure years by important events and not by the passing of time. So somebody could only have been alive for 20-something years, but they could be 100 years old because it was like 100 major events that happened in their life. Um, But I have two issues with that. Um, The first is that there were all sorts of of calendars and timekeeping devices in the ancient world. We know that the Egyptians had a calendar and the Hebrews had a calendar and tons of other countries had calendars. So if they had calendars, there's not really a reason why they wouldn't be keeping time at least similarly to the way that we do. Um, One second. And then the second issue is the only other time, units of time, that we have mentioned in the Bible is we have, like, years and hours and things like that. But then the next next thing that we see is reigns of kings. That's, like, the next step up. So we don't see any evidence of um of time being counted by major events um and i think that this really boils down to exegesis versus uh eisegesis uh this is what my my theology my bible teacher in college would have called ten dollar theological words um, but I'm going to give a pretty easy explanation of exegesis versus uh, eisegesis. So exegesis, the word literally means to lead out, and eisegesis, eisegesis means to lead into. So basically the idea is that um, the only true way to interpret a text is through exegesis reading the text and allowing the text to say what it says. Eisegesis 
is when you read a text, but you bring preconceived notions and other ideas into reading the text. And what happens is when you use something like eisegesis is you end up forming the text to fit what you want it to say rather than letting the text say what you what it does say. Um, and then a, a branch off of exegesis is the idea to let scripture interpret scripture. And what that means is if something in scripture is confusing, rather than immediately looking to outside sources, you should look to other passages in scripture to explain what is happening before immediately switching over. And so how does those things tie back to Abraham's age? Well, like I just read in Genesis 21 verse 5, it says he was literally 100 years old. And if we flip over to the New Testament, we read um, Hebrews eleven twelve. I missed it by one page. There we go. Um, which, when talking about Abraham, says, Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sands, which is by the seashore. Um, which was God's promise to Abraham, that his descendants would be more than the stars and more than the sands. Um, so the Bible clearly thinks that he was very old and literally states that he was 100 years old. So I don't think that bringing outside ideas that we really don't have very heavy proof of would make sense to try to make the ages of people younger, in, especially in Genesis, where the ages of people um, capped out at over 900 years old, like Methuselah, when there's not really any proof of that, and rather reading it for exactly what it says seems to make a little bit more sense, in my opinion. So, on with the story. Chapter 22 starts um, by saying that God tested Abraham. Um, the idea of God testing people is all throughout the Bible. And it can get a little confusing to some people because the Bible states that God will never, um, since God is pure good, he can't do evil. And a lot of times when we think about testing or tempting, that it means that evil is happening. But the Bible makes it very clear, especially in like the book of James, that testing your faith is not meant to have an evil outcome, but a good outcome. And so we see here that God tested Abraham means that we're setting up for a difficult thing that will end up for the better, that will end up for the good of whatever is happening. Um, 
And one of the things that really sticks out to me is it says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responded, here I am. I think that's really interesting because, I mean, him and God have been walking together now for, since chapter 12. Um, I think it's been about 25-ish years. Um, but Abraham just is immediately, no hesitation, no delay. Here I am. What do you want me to do? And then God asks him to do something outlandishly out of character for God. Um, and I'll just read it in verse 2. Then he said, that's God speaking, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, this is out of character and shocking for a couple of reasons. One, let's make something clear. Um, and this is really sad, So, but it's true. Um, many of the ancient cultures, especially in the land of Canaan, were known for human sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice of children. Um, the Canaanite god Moloch was, um, their statue was a, a bronze statue with his hands out like that. And what they would do is they would heat the bronze up and lay children on top of them to burn them alive as a form of worship to Moloch, this pagan demonic god um but abraham the god of abraham is not supposed to be like that um and he had never done anything like that and and not only that but just one chapter earlier um god says to abraham for isaac um for in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So he, God just told Abraham the chapter before, Isaac is the one that is going to fulfill everything. And now God's saying, you have to kill and burn your child as a sacrifice to me. But despite all of that, Abraham just goes, okay, um, and one of the big themes here is faith. And you're going to see that throughout this whole thing. Um, so Abraham just has the faith to say, okay. Um, doesn't discuss it. Doesn't dispute it. Doesn't try to argue or debate God over it. Just says, okay. Um, and he wakes up the next morning and starts getting ready. Um, he starts putting the saddles on. He starts chopping the wood. He starts doing the things himself rather than having his servants do them. Starts putting um, everything together for the travel. And he wakes up and he goes um, with his son and with a few of his servants on a journey. 
and they travel for two days and on the third day they get to the spot um, Mount Moriah and Abraham uh, Abraham turns to his servants and here's another example of his faith he turns to his servants um, and he says stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you so they travel for two days by donkey and then on the third day they get to this place and Abraham says Isaac and I are going to go up and we will come right back after we're done worshiping so the servants stay at the bottom of the hill and um, the burnt offering the wood of the burnt offering gets put on Isaac and Abraham takes the knife and the and the and the torch and they walk up the hill um, and they walk together up the hill the the Bible says um, and the two of them went together so um, oftentimes especially when I was young I thought of this story as um, Abraham kind of forcing Isaac to do this but the verbiage here even in the Hebrew describes that they were going willingly together that Isaac was trusting his father and that his father was trusting in God and that they were going together to do whatever it was that God had them to do so he puts the wood on Isaac he takes the torch and the knife for himself and they start to walk up the hill and um, as they walk Isaac addresses the elephant in the room and he says um, dad where's the lamb for the burnt offering because every other time we've done a burnt offering we've had a lamb and we don't have one and Abraham responds again with this incredible faith and says God will provide himself God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering so Abraham still there's kind of two camps here one camp believes that um, Abraham just had an enormous amount of faith and thought you know what no matter what my son's not gonna die we'll get up there there'll be like a lamb up there for us to just snatch and kill and burn and it'll be fine um, the other camp believes similarly that he had that insane amount of faith but that instead he thought God will provide a lamb and if he doesn't um, God will will raise my son from the dead um, and I will sacrifice him and then God will will raise him back for me to complete the promise either way what an incredible amount of faith more faith than i've ever had um, and so abraham responds and says that the lord will provide a lamb um, and they get up and they get to this specific place on top of mount moriah and they build an altar and they bind Isaac um, and the Bible doesn't mention that Isaac has any issues with this um, 
there's no like altercation described or questioning described. It just says that they, it says um, they came to the place and they built an altar and Abraham bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Um, which really means that like Isaac had to do this willingly. His dad was a hundred years old. At this point, Isaac was probably somewhere in his teen years. So Isaac could definitely have gotten out of this if he wanted to. But Isaac had faith um, in his father and in the God of his father that whatever was happening, everything was going to be okay. Um, I'm sure it, it had to be incredibly emotional no matter what, but the faith that both of these men show in this story is amazing. Um, so Isaac allows himself to be bound and be put on this altar. And um, the way that sacrifices happened for Hebrews was they would, um, with the lambs, they would put a lamb on the altar and the... Um, now, this is described later in the Bible. It is described in Leviticus. So we can only assume that it was similar for Abraham. We know that God had to have given him some sort of law for sacrifices because he, get, he, he does sacrifices to God. So we know that there was some sort of communication there, but we're not necessarily told what it was. So we can only assume off of the Levitical law a few books later of how exactly it would have worked. Um, but basically, with the Levitical law, uh, the lamb was bound and put on the altar, and then the, the person giving the sacrifice would put their hands on the head of the lamb, and the high priest would cut the lamb's throat from basically from ear to ear um, as the person was holding the head. And it's an incredibly brutal practice, but the point of the practice is to show how awful and how deadly sin is. Um, that the only way for these people, for the people of God, to cover their sin, not even to erase their sin, not to... Not to get rid of their sin, just to cover the sin, was to murder an innocent animal, to kill this innocent animal, sacrifice it to God. Um, so it was a very intimate and personal thing that they had to do. Um, so we can assume it must have been something similar to that. Um, and we see in verse 10, Abraham, it says stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So Abraham reaches out. He grabs the knife. His son is bound in front of him on the wood. He grabs the knife. We can only assume he puts a hand on his son's head. Um, and as he lifts his hand, he looks up and we see the angel of the Lord standing there. And he calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. 
the same way he started. And the angel of the Lord says to him, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And when Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So we see that as Abraham is preparing to sacrifice his son, um, God stops him and says, uh, do not, do not touch your son. Do not do this. Um, and this is a, this is a point that, um, that is made that, um, it's a point that, that is made that God is indeed against human sacrifice. He doesn't, that is not the, um, that is not the intention and that is not the will of God. And so God says, um, God says, do, do not do this. Stop. Um, and after he says that, uh, a ram is caught by its horns in the thicket. Uh, the Lord gave them a lamb to sacrifice. And so I'm sure Isaac leapt, just sprung off of the altar. He jumps off. They untie him. They go, they run over, they snag this lamb, tie that thing up and throw it on the altar. Praising the Lord the whole way, I'm sure. I know I would be. Um, and they offer that sacrifice to the Lord. Um, and when they do... Um, we see in verse 14, Abraham names the place um, Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide or the Lord will provide. Um, and then we see God say, the, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sands which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Obeyed me. So Abraham returned to the young men, and they arose, and they went to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt there. And so we see the angel of the Lord speak again to Abraham and, and bless him for his faith. And not only bless him, but a very specific blessing, which is given multiple times. But um, he says in verse 18, 
chapter 22, verse 18. In your seed, or, or by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, this is what is commonly called a messianic prophecy. Um, messianic prophecies are literally all throughout the Old Testament. Um, and what a messianic prophecy is, is it's a prophecy about the Messiah, um, the one that we read about in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. And when we realize that, we realize that um, going through this entire going through this entire chapter, there are parallels to Jesus all throughout. Um, so we're going to jump back and we're going to go through all of these parallels that are in this story um, that make the story even more important and even more moving than the faith that we see from Abraham um, in the story. So this story, end of 2000 BC, um, 2000 years later, Jesus Christ comes. And um, about 30 years after that, 30 two, 33 years after that, we see something that ends up paralleling exactly what's happening here. So um, we're going to look here. And in verse three, they saddle up on a donkey and they start to make their trek. Now, let me flip to the New Testament. And I'm going to start reading some parallels. If we flip to the first book of the New Testament, which is the uh, gospel according to Matthew, we see in chapter 21, um, verses 1 through 22, but most specifically, um, the, the first five verses um, is the beginning of a passage called the triumphal entry. And we will speak about Jesus and all of that um, in a later video. But the important part is to get this. In verse five, Jesus, uh, well, Matthew quotes... Um, Zechariah, which is one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9, 9, and it says, tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. And we see in chapter 22 that Christ comes into Jerusalem um, a week before he dies, sitting on a donkey. So there is parallel one. That could just be a coincidence if you believe in those things. However, um, if we flip to uh, Matthew 17, so a couple chapters earlier, 
we see in Matthew, in Matthew 17, chapters uh, 22 and 23. Nope. Verses 22 and 23. <laughs> we see Jesus say something very interesting. Um, in verse 4 of Genesis 22, we see that they travel for two days, and on the third day is when they come to the place that they're supposed to be. In Matthew 17, we see Jesus say, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Um, Jesus is prophesying about his coming death. And he says, and they will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised up. And then we see this happen exactly as Jesus says a few chapters later in chapters 27, 26, 27, 26, 27, 28, um, that he is betrayed and then he is killed. And on the third day, he is raised from the dead. Um, in verse 5 of the story of Abraham, Abraham tells, uh, tells his servants that we will be back, um, that we are going up the hill, but that we will be back um, after we are done. And that's exactly what we see with Jesus. He goes up onto Golgotha Hill, a different hill, but up Golgotha Hill, and um, he goes up this hill and afterwards after he is buried three days later he comes back and he appears to his apostles uh, who are currently disciples um, and he appears to um, 500 at one time but to many people um, he comes back and he appears to them in chapter in verses six and seven of the Abraham and Isaac story. We see that the wood gets laid on Isaac and he starts the walk up the hill. Now, there are two interpretations of this, um, kind of two ways that it could be viewed. I think that they are equally as powerful. So the first one is the one that I've most commonly heard, which is from John 19, um, John, is the gospel of john the account of jesus's life from john's perspective instead of from matthew's mark's or um luke's perspective and we see that in john 19 verse 17 um john records and he, bearing his cross, went out to a place they called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. So we see that Jesus bears his cross and starts to walk up this hill, the hill of Golgotha. Um, so that's one parallel. Uh, Isaac carrying the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on and Jesus carrying the wood that he will be sacrificed on. However... An interesting point is often made that um, Jesus didn't carry the cross all the way up the hill. 
we learn from the other Gospels that there is a man named Simon who was chosen out of the crowd because Jesus was so beaten and so bloodied that he couldn't carry the cross anymore. He was too weak to carry the cross anymore. And so the Roman guards chose a man named Simon to carry the cross for Christ up the rest of the hill. And that is where the second interpretation comes in. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Um, the second interpretation here, which, like I said earlier, I think is equally as powerful, is that this wood that Isaac puts on as he climbs up the hill um, is, an, is an illustration of Christ bearing the sin of us as he walks up the hill um, and as he gets put on the cross and as he gets sacrificed. Um, finally, um, in verse 8, God stops Abraham from sacrificing his son, his only son, which in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die. Um, God stops Abraham from sacrificing his only son for a lamb. And in John chapter 1, we see, let me get there, that's Luke. In John chapter 1, we see a man named, um, 29, we see a man named John the Baptist, who is a prophet that, um, prepared Israel for Jesus to come. And we see that when he sees Jesus, he says, quote, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so just as God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his only son, God instead sacrificed his only son. Uh, Isaac didn't have to die because Jesus, who is the sacrificial lamb, died as a sacrifice for us. Um, and then finally, we see that they came to a place named Mount Moriah. And now Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount. That's where um, Solomon's Temple ended up being built in Second Samuel, First Kings. After David, when Samuel, when Solomon became king, um, Solomon built the Temple, and the Temple Mount is Mount Moriah. How does this correlate to Jesus, though? Well, in John two. Uh, Jesus 
identifies himself, names himself as the temple. We see this in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Jesus answers and said unto them, um, really it's just verse 19. Um, But here we go. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And people are confused. People said it took 46 years to build this temple. Um, how will you raise it up in three days? And in verse 21, he says, it says, um, Jesus doesn't answer them, but John explains to us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So we see that Jesus correlates the temple with himself, the temple of his body, and that they will tear it down and in three days again this in three days he will rise in three days he will build it back up again so those are all of the parallels um at least that i know of that i could find between abraham and isaac uh, and that story and jesus but what can we learn from this i mean it's cool and there's there's cool illustrations i think very powerful illustrations but what can we learn from this well for that i think we need to stay in the new testament but specifically go to the book of hebrews in the book of hebrews chapter 11 there is a chapter that is colloquially colloquially known as the Hall of Faith. And the Hall of Faith is a chapter that talks about all of these different people from the Old Testament and highlights different places, um, different things that they did and that they did it for their faith. And so um, we see that um, there's 40 verses in chapter 11 and 10 people. And Abraham is mentioned um, in second place. The person that is mentioned the most is Moses, who was the high priest of Israel that brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, that guided them through the guidance of God, through the wilderness, and then um, handed off leadership to Joshua for Joshua to take uh, over the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and make it the land of Israel. But second to Moses is Abraham in the number of mentions. And one of those mentions, it says, um, let me find it, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Um... And so what we see here is that not only was Abraham's faith incredible in the moment, but it was so incredible in the moment that thousands of years later, and then again thousands of years from when Hebrews was written, 
it's still talked about as one of, if not the most faithful moment in the in the history of ordinary people being used by God. Um, and Hebrews here echoes what we see in Genesis, where it says that Hebrews verbiage here says that Abraham offered Isaac as if he actually had killed him and burned him. Um, because in Abraham's heart, that's what he was going to do. God told him to do it, so that's what he was going to do. And there was no question about that. Um, and that even if he did do it, that he had true faith in God, um, not that, not because he said it, but because the author of Hebrews says that he had faith in God that he would raise his son from the dead. Um, so what, what are kind of the main things? I think there's kind of three main things that we can learn from this story. The, the first one is that Yahweh... Um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, he's different from other gods. And I think we'll get to that. I think it's evident um, from what we've already seen, but I think I may get to that more in depth in a future episode, that he, he wasn't like the other gods. He was different, and so he wanted his people to be different. Um he doesn't want human sacrifice. He wants, um, the New Testament says, he wants us to be a living sacrifice. Not, not a human sacrifice where somebody actually dies, but a living sacrifice that rather than, than dying for God, which is not, not, um, which is not condemned people who die as martyrs like all of the apostles or like modern-day mission, missionaries that get killed because they don't recant their faith. But, but God wants us to be living sacrifices, sacrifices that live for him, that do things for him, that share his words, that speak about him, that um, evangelize to people about him. I think number two that's incredibly important um, is that complete obedience will be rewarded. Um, and complete obedience, no matter what we think the outcome will be. Um, it's obvious from verse 17 in Hebrews 11, verse 17, that, or verse 19, that Abraham was pretty convinced that he was actually going to have to kill his son. But no matter the supposed outcome, no matter what he thought was going to happen, he had faith that in the end, he would still be rewarded, um, that his son would, would be raised from the dead and that his son would be the seed because God doesn't break his promises. Um, the Bible tells us that all things work together for the good of those who have faith in him, who have faith in God, uh, who love God. And 
that, that Abraham knew that, and Abraham trusted in that. And that type of complete obedience is the reason why, that type of faith is the reason why he was blessed among all the people, why all the nations were blessed through him, and why he had descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea, because he had complete faith and obedience that was so much higher than um, than many other people who are used by God in the Bible. Um, and that kind of ties into point three, which is that faith is the most important legacy. Um, Abraham did a lot of things, and, and, and Abraham did a lot of incredibly important things, and Abraham did a lot of incredibly dumb things. <laughs> uh, but his faith is the part that was remembered. His faith is the part that was remembered by God, and his faith is the part that was written down and highlighted by God as being the most important thing. Um, and so I really think that if we want to be, if we want a legacy, if we want a legacy that lasts in this world, um, that the best way to get an important and a good legacy is by having whole faith and complete obedience to God so that um, so that we do what is right in the eyes of God and then let him decide our legacy and not us because if we try to decide our legacy we might decide something that we think is really good but it might not be what's actually most important because God knows what's most important and things that seem to be most important to us are not necessarily even close to as important as we really think they are. And so I think that if we really want to have um, the best legacy that we can, then we should focus on God and let God choose our legacy, have faith in God and let our faith be the legacy, the faith that we instill in our children or in our friends or family or strangers on the internet, um, that that faith is the most important legacy that we could ever have and that we could ever want um, rather than something that we choose that we think is important that goes away in five or 50 years and doesn't stick around for 4,000 like... Uh, <laughs> like this. So that's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, thank you guys all so much for watching, listening, uh, supporting me. Please like, comment, subscribe. Questions, feedback, criticisms, love, hate, whatever. Put it in the comments. Let me know what you think. Um, Look in the description. There will be all sorts of notes, all sorts of sources so that you guys can go read it. Um, read the Bible every day if you can. Um, pray.
pray every day, even if you're not a Christian, I challenge you to pray because I think God will answer you if you if you do truly want to to know if he exists. God will answer. Um, but yeah, thank you guys all so much for watching and listening and uh, have a great rest of your days and uh, God bless.